This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask his guidance on our study. Father, you have revealed these things to us in your word that we might come to understand who we are and who you are and your plan and purpose for our lives. There are many things that we face in Scripture that are challenging to us. They're difficult for us. You set forth a standard that is, in many cases, impossible for us to attain because it can only be attained if we walk by the Holy Spirit. But there are other things that are very difficult to us to attain because we have to overcome obstacles within our own experience, obstacles related to our own background, our own education, sometimes obstacles put before us by our culture, by our government, by other uh, aspects in our lives. And yet we have to learn to apply your word to the best of our ability within the framework of our own experience. Father, we pray that we might be challenged to always pursue that which is excellent, always pursue that which is the best and that we never give up in our study, our desire to study your word, to learn it, and to assimilate it into our thinking. And we pray today as we go through uh, this passage and continue in Proverbs 4 that, that you might, through God the Holy Spirit, illuminate our thinking to ways in which we can expand, improve how we implement your word in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we begin in Proverbs 4 this morning, I have a little caveat and a little uh, a word of warning to those of you who are parents or who were parents, who want to be parents, and that is that passages such as this sometimes produce a tremendous guilt reaction from people. Let me remind you that there are no perfect parents, and you were never a perfect parent. You're probably not as good as you think you were. There are no perfect children. There are no perfect grandparents. I know that probably challenges a few people, but there are none who are perfect. Scripture says, no, not one. We don't live perfect lives. We live in a world that has been corrupted by sin. We live in a world where the institutions that God established, which we refer to as the divine institutions, were have all been corrupted in our experience by sin, whether it is uh, circumstances related to individual responsibility or marriage or family, whether it refers to to, uh, nations or human government and nations, all of these divine institutions have been impacted by sin. They're corrupt. Therefore, when we look at a number of commands in Scripture related to how we are to function 
within these different spheres of authority. You know, we refer to these as divine institutions, but in Reformed theology, there have been those who have referred to them as spheres of authority, which emphasizes another aspect. They are built-in spheres of authority in God's creation. And when we look at these, we recognize that that all human authorities have problems because they, too, are corrupted by sin. And so we have to learn from the Scripture how to best function within those systems. Now, that immediately presents a problem for some of you. Some of you, I'm not going to include myself in this because this isn't my area of weakness, but some of you have an area of weakness that trends towards legalism. And you can only think of things in terms of absolute black and white. You cannot think, it's impossible for you to think, and I know who you are. A good pastor knows his congregation, but I won't, I won't <clears throat> blow your cover. You know um, that you just cannot see any gray area. And yet the Bible does talk about areas of what we might call grayness. Uh, there are those categories of absolute morality, absolute right and wrong, righteousness and unrighteousness, justice and injustice, that which is uh, obedience to God, that which is disobedience to God. But in wisdom literature, I want to remind you, wisdom is not always a matter of absolute right and wrong. There are some things that are wise and some things that are not wise, but this runs more in a spectrum. Some of us are in circumstances where we would like to apply what we know to be the wisest, and when we use that that suffix on the word wise, we know that there's a spread. There's that which is wise, wiser, and wisest. Uh, sometimes we are prevented by circumstances from doing what we would really like to do if we were in other circumstances. We're, every person is saved in a certain place in their life. Some are in very good circumstances due to things totally beyond their control, their, their, their financial uh, circumstances, their parental circumstances, their geographical circumstances, uh, their educational circumstances. Other people aren't as far fortunate. Everybody starts at a certain place and has to move to the best of their ability through the application of doctrine toward spiritual maturity. And we have to understand that and that there are some areas in life where all things being equal, yes, X decision, a certain decision is better and should be implemented rather than another decision. But that doesn't mean that everybody's in the same place where they can do that. So that's my warning as we get into this, because what we're going to deal with here is the wise course of action in terms of parental training for children. And this I've titled this lesson, Who is Responsible for Teaching Wisdom? And my basic bottom line on this is only the parent is responsible for the education of the children. Now, does that mean you shouldn't send your children to public school? Not necessarily. Does that mean that uh, churches should not have Sunday school? Not necessarily. But these concepts that we have so deeply ingrained in our culture are new, relatively speaking, to history. 
They are not something that is embedded in the historical past. The concept of a Sunday school, the concept of of public education were completely unknown to the biblical writers and biblical culture. The only person that's going to be accountable to God for the education of children are going to be the parents. And that involves not only the education related to what we uh, call or might refer to as secular subjects today, but also in terms of spiritual subjects. And uh, Proverbs chapter uh, 4, is verses 1 through 9, is one of those key passages in the Scripture related to the divine institution of the family and part of the responsibilities of parents to children in terms of Passing on doctrine. We'll need to talk about how we use that word in a minute. Passing on doctrine, passing on wisdom from one generation to the next. Now, at the last pastor's conference, Jeremy Thomas, the pastor of uh, Fredericksburg Bible Church, did an excellent job in talking about this, this generational transfer of doctrine. And it's very important. Now, some people, I think, got a little upset because he made some uh, negative comments about about Sunday school. And there are problems with Sunday school. But I think that some things need to be qualified a little bit. He, he cited some studies, and I've read the same books and the same material, that talk about the negative consequences of, of Sunday school today. I have a lot of questions about these studies. I think they're basically right. What they're doing is giving us those statistics just give us a snapshot of where we are as a culture today in terms of the fact that within six months of graduating from high school and going off to college, uh, you you send your your sweet little Johnny or Susie off to the University of Texas or Texas A&M or uh, Liberty University, I gotta get the Christian schools in there too. Uh, these are just representatives of a spectrum of schools or, uh, Stephen F. Austin or Southern Methodist or wherever. In six months, you've got a 90% chance of, of your sweet little child or grandchild coming home having rejected everything you've taught them for 18 years. They've rejected uh, what you say about God and Christianity. They've rejected your political perspectives. Uh, they they seem like a stranger to you as they're going as they're trying to find their feet and their balance in a secular world. Uh, I think that um, in, in the course of some of these studies, uh, part part of which was produced by uh, Ken Ham and Answers in Genesis, they are accurately reflecting the fact that Sunday school. And this is the qualifier I'm putting in here. As it is practiced in probably 99.99% of evangelical churches is a failure. And it's a failure because the people who are teaching the Sunday school class classes are using these, these watered-down curricula that are developed by uh, these publishing houses that, that produce this for most churches. And the, the people who are teaching those Sunday school classes are, are bare, barely, uh, are, are barely breathing in terms of their regenerate life. They're just maybe a half a step beyond regeneration and they don't know a whole lot themselves either about scripture or about how to teach kids and they don't know a whole lot about, uh, about, um, 
how to take these kids and prepare them for, for adulthood, spiritual adulthood. Now, we try very hard to rise above that, and I know of other congregations that do, and I know of parents in this congregation who have done as good a job as anybody can be expected to do to raise their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and have done a, 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 a far superior job of training their kids to to handle the challenges, the secular challenges that our kids face when they go off to school and have these kids completely flop and reject everything anyway. Uh, just because you train them well is no guarantee that their volition is going to lock in place and they're going to start doing the right thing when they leave home or continue to do the right thing. And I, even though I have no children and have not gone through that process, I have seen that happen in my own experience as I have trained what might be termed spiritual children in terms of young men who desire to go off in, into uh, the pastoral ministry, and I have spent hours and years training them only to have them completely uh, reverse course, make a 180-degree shift in terms of their theological understanding and go in an opposite direction no matter how much I prepared them, no matter how much they read, how much training they've had, our children, spiritual or physical, have their own volition, and you can only do so much. And beyond that point, you can't do it. But what this passage does is it challenges you as a parent the fact that you have to do your very best within your set of circumstances in terms of passing on the word uh, to your children. And you as a parent cannot slough it off and expect the Sunday, Sunday school teachers, prep school teachers, school teachers in the public school to do your job for you. If you expect them to do any percentage of your job for you, you've already failed as a parent, in my opinion, because the Word of God doesn't give us that option to shift these areas of responsibilities in these divine institutions to someone else. They're your responsibility. And so part of what I want to challenge us uh, to do in light of this passage is to, to take these things seriously and reflect upon them. And you may not have children yet. You may not have children. You may have, your children may already be grown and you may now have grandchildren. But there are ways in which we can all take principles from this in terms of application within our particular, uh, particular sphere. As we look at this section of Proverbs, I've pointed out that there are uh, ten basic lessons on wisdom that are given in these first nine chapters of Proverbs. We're now in the, uh, on the fifth lesson, the importance of following the path of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. This is stressed in verses 1 through 9, but it's stressed in terms of following the instruction of the Father. We look at just the first four verses. We see something uh, significant uh, emphasized here. Uh, Hear my children, the uh, author is saying, and it's unique there because everywhere else it's hear my son. So here we see that it's addressed to a, a broader, uh, broader audience, his children, not just his son. The instruction of a father. And give attention to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine. 
Do not forsake my law. And then in verse 3, down through the end of verse uh, 9, we see it's a quote within the passage, and it takes us to not to his training from his father. So what we see here is this is where the generational concept goes on. He's teaching his child, his son, what his father taught him, and that's the idea. We are to we are the custodians as a parent. You are the custodian of biblical truth and wisdom to be passed on from the previous generation to the next generation, and you are the vital link in that process of carrying doctrine forward from one generation uh, to the next. And so he says in verse 3, When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, Let your heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. So the writer here reflects upon the fact that he, when he was young, he had listened carefully to his father. And this is Solomon. He listened carefully to his father, David. And for much of Solomon's early life, he followed and exemplified the teaching of his father. But what happened to Solomon? We all know Solomon eventually became influenced by the world, became influenced by the idolatry of the many wives that he took in disobedience to God. And Solomon ended up rejecting God and being influenced in disobedient directions. So even with the best instruction he had from his father David, it did not guarantee that Solomon would not go astray away from Bible doctrine. So Part of my caution here is uh, this is not the opportunity for you to go home and self-flagellate for the next three or four days as you're beating yourself up over some failure as a parent. Uh, this is not a this is not designed to do that. This is designed to challenge others and all of us to uh, press on in a, a higher form. So as I pointed out earlier in the introduction. This passage really focuses on this emphasis on the um, third divine institution, which is family. This in uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 uh, through 8 are passages that, that are the core passages for the family responsibility in passing on education. Just to remind you, we have five divine institutions. A divine institution is like, are, are like social laws embedded within the very creation of God. They are designed to provide for the security, uh, for the safety, the perpetuation uh, of the human race, and they are uh, not uh, uh, culturally conditioned. They are for every culture, therefore every human being, believer or unbeliever. The first three were instituted before the fall. The second, uh, the, the second group, four and five, were instituted after the fall. The first two were to provide for prosperity, uh, even in the midst of a perfect environment. Uh, number four and five were designed to curtail sin so that the other three uh, divine, the first three divine institutions could uh, be developed and could flourish uh, in that environment. And so these are not conventions developed by human beings over the course of time, which is what the culture wants to say. 
uh, but they are divinely mandated, built-in principles that when violated will ultimately lead to the destruction of a culture. We see this today. This is what's lost in the current debate that uh, we're, we are gradually losing related to same-sex marriage. Uh, marriage is not something just for believers. Marriage is for believers and unbelievers. But marriage is what it is, and it is a foundational element in all culture, and it is what it is because God designed it that way. And once we get a, a, a culture based on human viewpoint paganism, they then want to go in and change and modify all of these different foundational elements. Well, once you completely shift your foundational elements, what happens to the house built on that foundation? It collapses. So, with, and, when, and the problem we have in our culture is when you reach a larger and larger majority that buys into these ideas, then eventually you're going to see a, a complete uh, self-destruction of that culture. It will implode. It's not, we're not going to fall because we're defeated from the outside. We're going to fall because we're going to be defeated from, uh, from the inside. So these divine institutions each carry an authority structure within them, and that authority relates to the fact that, that within that sphere of operation, there is one primary responsibility person or entity in the place of uh, ultimate responsibility so that when uh, the authority of another entity comes in and uh, supplants that that authority that's when you have a conflict and that's when you have a, have a problem uh, for example it is not the role of the government to come in and supplant the role of parents when it comes to what goes on inside of the home. And so this is what causes uh, great problems. So the first area is individual responsibility. Every individual is accountable to God. God is the ultimate authority. Second divine institution is marriage. The authority in marriage is the husband. That doesn't minimize the value and significant role of the wife, but it, it places the fact that there is one person who's going to be uh, the authority uh, the authority in the home and the one who is held accountable for it before God. And third, the family where the parents are the ones in charge and the parents are, responsib- are responsible for the education and development of the children. In human government, establishes a fourth institution. The ultimate authority is the government, what, no matter what kind it is, whether it's a monarchy, whether it is a representative republic, uh, whatever it might be, there is some ultimate authority there in terms of the, uh, 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 the, the whole, the state. And then we have the development of the nations after the Tower of Babel, and the nation itself, the individual nation, uh, is, the, uh, is the absolute authority, not an international uh, executive, legislative, or judiciary, such as the UN or the World Court, that is a complete violation of the fifth divine institution. Now, this last week, <clears throat> a firestorm of reaction set in. Uh, it was set in or was ignited by a piece done on MSNBC by Melissa uh, Perry, one of the, uh, Melissa Harris Perry, one of their hosts. And uh, she recorded a commercial for MSNBC in which she stated that children do not belong to their parents but are instead the responsibility of the, uh, of the members of their community. 
Now, she's not the first to state this idea. Hillary Clinton stated this idea in her book, It Takes a Village, back in the 90s. But she didn't originate this idea. This is just the current manifestation of a series of ideas that come out of a result of the most extreme form of thinking from the Enlightenment, which rejected all divine authority. And ever since the late 1700s, this aspect of enlightenment thinking that the ultimate authority is not God, it is whatever we derive from uh, from empiricism or rationalism. In other words, it's, it's the majority vote determines what's right, not God. Then uh, as the elements within our society that have bought into that increase, then the society comes under tremendous weakness. So in her statement, she said, uh, just at the conclusion there, the part of, uh, that I've underlined, she said part of it is we have to break through our kind of private idea that kids belong to their parents or kids belong to their families and recognize that kids belong to the whole communities. This is a communist idea. This is a statist idea, and it is a complete rejection of divine institution number three. But once you transform divine institution number one, which we've done, nobody's responsible for their actions anymore. It's always somebody else's fault. It's either uh, the fact that, that I was dropped on my head when I was a kid or I have some, I have some kind of addiction because certain things happened uh, uh, prenatally or whatever it might be. It's just not my fault. Now we redefine responsibility, we redefine marriage, we can redefine the family. And it's not the responsibility of parents to train the kids, but it's the responsibility of the government to train the kids. This idea goes back in history to, uh, can be traced back to Plato and probably earlier. In the Republic, Plato said, all those in the city who happen to be older than 10, they will send out to the country. The government basically would take all the kids and taking over their children, they will rear them far away from those dispositions they now have from their parents in their own manners and laws that are such as we described before. And with the city and the regime, of which we were speaking thus established most quickly and easily, it will itself be happy and most profit the nation in which it comes to be. In other words, if you want to have the best citizens in a country, the government has to raise your kids. This same idea was promoted by Jean-Jacques Rousseau in his uh, uh, novel related to uh, that was related to education on a meet called A Meal, in which he said, uh, the education of children should not be left to their father's capacities and prejudices, especially since it is even more important to the state than to their fathers. The state remains while the family is dissolved. So uh, Rousseau's dates are 1712 to 1778. He's part of the Enlightenment thinking. This kind of thinking began to uh, take root and influence Western civilizations in the late 18th century, and this grew and flourished throughout the uh, 19th, uh, 19th century. But at the heart of his understanding of the role of family and the role of education is a theological concept, and that is true for all of these people. Whether we are talking about uh, Melissa Harris-Perry or Hillary Clinton or Plato or Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, it's expressed clearly also in Emile where Rousseau stated, there is no original perversity in the human heart. 
There is a rejection of what God says as being the basic nature of human beings, and that is that they are fallen. Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So modern education philosophy is ultimately based upon a concept that can be traced back through John Dewey, traced back to Rousseau, traced back to Plato, that the nature of a child is that they are basically good, not basically evil. That changes your whole perspective on what you're going to do with children uh, in the classroom. As Christians living in any culture, whether it is the Greco-Roman culture of the time of the New Testament or whether you're talking about uh, Christians living uh, in France during the time of the French Revolution, or Christians living in New England or uh, California in tw- early 21st century America where the state wants to have more and more control over children, we have a problem with trying to implement our responsibilities before God. We are... Uh, always faced with this challenge of living in the devil's world. And I designed this little chart to try to help show what we have to deal with. On the left, I give the divine viewpoint principle that education is to be family-centered and family-based. It is the job of the parents to train and educate children in everything. There's no asterisk there that says, well, I'll train them on some things but leave the rest up to the public school. Public school systems and public school curriculums are all shaped by different worldviews. And your job is to train your children as a a Christian and pass on a Judeo-Christian, biblically-based worldview. You have the responsibility, if your children are in public school or even in many Christian schools, you have the job to unlearn uh, and reteach a lot of concepts that they're going to pick up in school. Uh, Mark Musser, who's a pastor up in, uh, uh, up in the uh, Olympia, Washington area, also spoke at the last conference, and I were having a conversation about this. He has several children, uh, and as they grew up, uh, he, had, he said he had more trouble with their Christian school education than with their public school education. And that was up in uh, Washington State, not known for being a, a biblically grounded uh, cultural scenario. Uh, so the problem is that that in the Christian school they were just uh, they were off just a little bit, but everything, even the bad stuff, is couched within biblical terminology, and so it's extremely deceptive. But in the public school, it's real clear where it's bad and where it's good, and it's more more easy to pick out the errors and to deal with that. So we get into uh, some of these kind of conflicts. And one thing I want to kind of head off at the pass here a little bit is some of the things I saw happen in churches in the early 80s. Homeschooling really took off in the late 70s and early 80s, and churches would divide up into cliques between the parents who were the really godly parents there homeschooling their kids and the ones who just are kind of godly wannabes, and they they can't homeschool, so they got their kids in Christian school, and then the real loser parents who have their kids in public school. We kind of laugh at that, but that's true, and that kind of thing still rears its ugly head every now and then. And let me tell you, there are a lot of, of parents who cannot do a good job homeschooling for a variety of reasons, and they should not be homeschooling, no matter how 
ideal that position may be in an ideal world, but we don't live in an ideal world. And there are a lot of parents who ought to have their kids out of public school, and they should be homeschooling them, but for various reasons they just can't. And that doesn't mean they're not as good of a parent. There are a lot of factors that go into making these decisions, and nobody has the right to sit in any kind of judgment on how some other parent makes their decisions. Um, we have the, the ideal in a r- ideal world where moms could all stay at home with the kids and be there all the time and where finances weren't an issue and where dads could come home like my dad did. My dad, you could set your clock at 5.20 every afternoon. He would walk through the door. He caught the same bus home and then caught a ride from the bus station to the house. We didn't have two cars. And he would always get home uh, within a minute or so every single day. And nowadays, there's more pressure in the workplace. Many times, uh, men just can't get away early. They have to work late. Uh, these are problems. Um, then on the other hand, uh, and, and because we don't live in an ideal world, we, don't, we can't always have ideal solutions. Uh, the divine viewpoint model is family-centered based education, and the human viewpoint model is this tribal state-based education. And often where families are caught is they're somewhere in between, and it just depends on where they are due to a lot of different, uh, different circumstances. Uh, maybe you're in a single-parent home, and there are so many of those today, people who uh, due to no fault of their own, perhaps, or maybe it was their fault, but but they're now in, in a divorce situation. They're a single parent, and they have to work, and they have to they they don't have the money, and that can't be held against them. But they have to figure out ways, starting where they are, to do the best they can do in this in this situation. Um, they uh, so there for them the wisest course of action is going to be at a different place on the spectrum that's the arrow in the middle than for others uh, wisdom versus foolishness is not necessarily an issue of absolute right and absolute wrong sometimes we're not in a position today to do what is the wise course of action we don't have the money the time or the circumstances. But we understand what the wise course should be so we can start moving toward it and get as close to it as we can in the next 5, 10, or 15 years. And parents need to understand that, not just accept things the way they are, but say, you know, and if I really could get where I want to be, I've got to make a plan uh, to progress to progress and go there. So Proverbs 4 uh, emphasizes uh, the parental role. Uh, the writer says, Hear, my children, uh, the instruction of the Father, and give attention to the understanding. It begins with this address to sons, which is uh, unique in all of these different lessons. Usually it's just to my son, but here it is to children, which indicates uh, that he is talking to a broader range than just his own uh, biological uh, biological son. So it's pointing to uh, a class or a kind of instruction that should characterize that of all fathers to sons, uh, not just him addressing his own uh, his own son. And this is play out because he's going to give an illustration of his father uh, to himself. Uh, there are two parallel commands here: to hear and to give attention to know something. 
Now, hearing in, in biblical language doesn't mean just to sit there and listen and take notes, but it means to do what the Scripture says to do. You haven't heard if you're not doing it. Just because your auditory nerves have been stimulated doesn't mean you've heard anything biblically. If you go home and do what the Scriptures have told you to do, then you have heard. Uh, this is the same idea in the parallel word kashav used in the second line, which means to be fully alert, to listen attentively. So the challenge is to pay close attention. This is repeated numerous times in the introduction, and it's stated again when we in this chapter when we come down to verse 20. My son, give attention to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. And then verse 21, don't let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. This is wisdom is the priority. And then the words for instruction and understanding are parallel. The word for instruction is moser, which indicates the idea of disciplined instruction, that the father should have in his mind and develop somehow a curriculum for developing his children to take them from infancy to maturity, from spiritual uh, being spiritually unsaved to being regenerate and then maturing them in the Lord uh, until they're out of the home. The father should have that, not isolated from any input from the mom, but they can work on it together. But the responsibility isn't for you as a dad to delegate that to the mother and say, I've got to go to work, you take care of the kids. That's God's not going to ask, hey, what did the mom do at home? He's going to ask you, he said, okay, Dad, how did you handle your uh, paternal responsibilities to train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? That's the issue. And so we are to value, to listen and apply the instruction of the Lord. Verse 2, he says, speaking as the Father, and in the personification here, the Father's teaching and the Word of God are seen as parallel and synonymous. He says, for I give you good doctrine. Now, the word lechak that's translated doctrine is a word that means instruction, teaching, or guidance. That's what doctrine is. Now, somehow along the way, people have started using that as sort of a catchphrase, and that's the only word they use to refer to the teaching of the Word of God. But it sort of loses its meaning like any word does. When we use a word over and over again, it sort of loses its significance and its impact, and people say, well, I'm not really sure what doctrine is. Then you get in other branches of evangelicalism where they've reduced doctrine to mean just theological instruction. And they've limit, limited it in that way. Instruction in the scripture includes not only understanding the more abstract ideas that are there, but also how you implement them in your life. It's used, the word doctrine is used this way in our military many ways. When you go into any set of circumstances, you follow certain procedures. Uh, going from the theoretical to the actual boots-on-the-ground application. That's how doctrine is used in Scripture, from the, the more abstract elements all the way down to the details and how something is implemented on a day-to-day basis. So the, the Father says, I give you this good instruction, sound instruction, 
Then the warning, do not forsake my law. Now, the word for law here is the word Torah, but Torah doesn't always mean law in the sense of the Mosaic law or law in the sense of a legal code. The word uh, Torah comes from a word we'll see in a minute, yara, which means instruction. It's a form of instruction or teaching. And so the Torah is really God's instruction to man in how he should live. Don't do this and do this. That's how the word develops. So we're not supposed to forsake the teaching or the instruction of the Father. And then he talks about his own training. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother. Now, the word that's used here for only one is the Hebrew word echad. Now, this is a significant word because it emphasizes the, fi- the fact that it's a one and treated uh, uniquely, uniquely as one. This is a word that describes um, Isaac to Abraham. Abraham had other sons, but Isaac was his unique son. This word uh, yakid here is also applied in the sense of only begotten. So it's emphasize, emphasizing uh, the uniqueness of each individual, uh, each individual's uh, child. And he says, "When I was my father's son," and that uh, uh, emphasizes the fact that in Hebrew, in Hebrew thought, uh, son, sonship was not just a matter of biology, it's a matter of following the teaching that has been handed down uh, from the parent. It's not just a matter of biological parenting as much as it has to do with, with the instruction that comes down uh, from, the, from the parents. In verse 4, we read that, that what the father did was he taught me. This is the word yara, from which we get Torah. The last three word letters in Torah are R-A-H. That picks up the core idea there. And this emphasizes just basically basic instruction. It emphasizes the fact that the wise person, the wise parent, gives insight to his children in all aspects of life so that the young may know how to conduct themselves and how to live a long and blessed life. Uh, fathers teach not only the issues related to more abstract things in life, but also how to live on in terms of common sense. Common sense is uncommon today because parents haven't passed it on from father uh, to son. Now I want to stop here because today we're running a little out of t- time because of the, uh, the Lord's table. And I'll come back and develop this a little more next time in terms of this, the, the parental instruction and the importance of placing doctrine as the priority in life. Parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, the only thing that really matters when all of life is over is how much doctrine anybody has in their soul. And that's the priority for parents is to give that doctrinal framework to their children. And it's not your job to pass that off to anybody else. That doesn't mean we get rid of Sunday school or prep school. That doesn't mean that parents shouldn't ever send their kids to public school or to uh, Christian school. But it does mean that when all is said and done, don't rely on them for educating your children. It's your job and only your job to make sure your children and grandchildren are educated. 
Father, I mean, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be challenged in this way. There are principles here important for each of us that no matter who we are, we need to make a priority out of your word. We need to hear your word. We need to pay attention to it. We need to pay, uh, give it great attention. And that means not only to listen, to hear the words, what is said, but also to implement them into our lives and into our thinking. We're reminded in this passage that that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and uh, that affects why the training needs to be there. But for all of us, we're born that way with a heart inclined to foolishness because we're born uh, spiritually dead. We have sin nature, we're corrupt, and there needs to be a solution to that problem. And that solution was given at the cross through Jesus Christ. And, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died for you. He paid that penalty so that you could simply uh, accept him as Savior, trust in him and him alone, and you'll have eternal life. That brings about new birth, but now you're a spiritual baby, and the, the issue then is spiritual growth and maturity. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with what we've studied today, that we might press on, that we might apply wisdom in every area of our life and continue to advance on the path of wisdom. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.